Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Stephen L. Shine about the article, Effectiveness of Pharmacological Therapies for Intracranial Hypertension in Children with Severe Traumatic Brain Injury, Results from an Automated Data Collection System Time Sync to Drug Administration, published in the March 2016 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Shine worked as a clinical fellow and T32 year at the Safar Center for Resuscitation Research at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania during the study, and he is currently an assistant professor of pediatric critical care medicine at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome, Steve. Thank you very much, Margaret. I really appreciate the opportunity. Steve, would you start out by giving us some background to your study and what led you to look at the questions you did? Yes, I'd be happy to. As you and I'm sure the listeners of this podcast are well aware, traumatic brain injury is a large problem in children. It is a very common problem worldwide affecting millions of people. It's a frequent cause of admission to pediatric ICUs. And very importantly, it causes a lot of morbidity and mortality in our patients. And I think importantly, it's something that actually can be quite amenable to the critical care that we provide. It's it's a disease that we really can't have a large impact on the outcomes of these children. As you're probably aware, the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, where I did my training, is a center that's had a a longstanding tradition as a a leader of neurocritical care. And two of my research mentors, Dr. Patrick Kahanek and Dr. Michael Bell, are two of the people that have led the TBI guidelines publications over the last couple decades. Those guidelines, among other other things recommend the control of intracranial hypertension and the monitoring of ICP and trying to keep ICPs less than 20 as a mainstay of contemporary therapy. What's surprising is the real paucity of data that supports many of the therapies that we use. The therapies that I was interested in studying are the pharmacologic therapies, the medications we use to try to reduce ICP in children with traumatic brain injury. So looking back over the 2003 guidelines, some of the medications that they go over for possible use to control ICP in children with a pediatric traumatic brain injury are things like opiates like fentanyl, hyperosmolar agents like mannitol and hypertonic saline, and barbiturates like pentobarbital. And these guidelines, which were as evidence-based as possible, were widely accepted. There's survey data that was published in 2006 by the Washington University Group out of St. Louis that showed that the vast majority of pediatric intensivists and neurosurgeons used sedation and used hypertonic therapies for children with traumatic brain injury. What's very surprising is the paucity of data that supports these. When you look at the 2012 guidelines, which tried to incorporate all evidence up to that point about how to take care of children with traumatic brain injury, there was literally zero evidence for the use of fentanyl or other opiates. Interestingly, in 2003, there was only one citation for fentanyl, and it was a case report published in German of a child whose ICP actually went up after they were given fentanyl. In terms of mannitol, there was also literally no data that met the guidelines criteria for inclusion to support its use in pediatric TBI. For hypertonic saline, there actually was some data. Specifically for boluses, there was only one single prospective RCT that provided class 2 evidence. That was done in a total of 18 patients that received crossover therapy between a bolus of hypertonic and a bolus of normal saline. And then for pentobarbital, there were two small series of children, each about 10 or 12 patients, who provided the data for a a loose recommendation for pentobarbital consideration. And so really, we're left with this really common disease that causes a lot of morbidity and a lot of mortality, a lot of which can be amenable to good neurocritical care. 
And we have these therapies that we use and have used for decades with really little data to support them. So the goals of the study were at an absolute minimum to at least provide more data, especially for fentanyl and mannitol to provide some data because literally there was none. One of the things we really wanted to try to do well was describe a really thorough time course of how these medications work at the bedside with the hope that our data would be able to help practitioners when they're at the bedside of children with traumatic brain injury so that you have a child with TBI who's having an ICP spike and you gave whatever medication you gave and it's been five minutes and the ICP still isn't coming down and you're asking yourself, what do I do? Do I wait another five minutes? Do I give another medication? When is this medication, if it's going to do anything, when's it going to start doing it? And finally, we hope to at least get some preliminary comparative analyses among the most commonly used medications so that we could begin to address the issue of what should be the first-line therapy for children with traumatic brain injury when they have an ICP spike. And so those were really the, the things that drove us to do this study. So how did you do this study? So this was a prospective observational study. We enrolled every child with a traumatic brain injury, with severe traumatic brain injury, so those with a GCS of eight or less who had an ICP monitor who were admitted to the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh between November 2011 and February 2013. All these children were treated with the CHP TBI protocol, and that protocol is based on the, the contemporary TBI guidelines. All these children were endotracheally intubated, mechanically ventilated. They all had central venous lines and an arterial line. It was our routine to put in both an intraparenchymal ICP monitor and also an external ventricular drain. This enables us to both do continuous CSF diversion, but also continuously measure ICP through the intraparenchymal monitor. Our routine practice is to use continuous neuromuscular blockade, at least during the first 48 to 72 hours, and also a continuous effusion of fentanyl. It's our practice to keep children's CO2 about 32 to 35 millimeters of mercury, so some very mild hyperventilation, uh, and all these children were kept normothermic. And above and beyond that, the typical practice at Pittsburgh was if a child had an ICP of at least 20 for at least five minutes or so, that's what prompted kind of a, a more a, a therapy-directed towards lowering their ICP. Typically, fentanyl was the first-line drug. Hypertonic was usually the second line, and pentobar was usually the third line for kind of the initial ICP spikes for each patient. But obviously, for each patient, that, that uh, therapy was kind of more tailored to their specifics as they went along. And if kids clearly didn't respond well to one drug, then another drug might become the preferential drug. It is also very common to get arterial blood gases during ICP spikes to make sure that the CO2 is within target. And it was pretty common to, to modulate the mechanical ventilator to lower the CO2 to see if that would help bring down ICP. So that's kind of how these kids were treated by the clinical team. As the study team, what we did is we collected data for any boluses of medications that they got to try to treat the high ICP. As I mentioned, fentanyl, hypertonic, and pentobarb tended to be the, the three drugs we used the most. We did try to collect data on mannitol as well, because like I said, there was literally zero data on mannitol in children with traumatic brain injury, though our typical practice was to use mannitol usually in the, the emergency room setting or in uh, near herniation events, but not necessarily for just kind of your more run-of-the-mill ICP spike. So we needed to do some things, to, we needed to do several things to really to be able to get this data and be able to use it. So the first thing we needed to do was we needed a way to accurately collect very granular ICP and CPP measurements. You know, most of the data from the last 10 to 20 years that looks at ICP and CPP, it's hourly measurement of those parameters or every five minutes, and it's very likely just someone kind of sitting by the bedside with a pen and paper writing down the numbers from the screen. And we were lucky enough to be able to employ a, a much more objective and granular system. So we bought a product called Bedmaster, which is basically a software platform that connects into the monitors at the bedside. And this Bedmaster system downloads 
every vital sign, including ICP and CPP, as often as every five seconds directly from the monitor. So it gets you not only a very large volume of data, but it's also very objective. And very importantly, as I'll get to, it also collects all the waveforms for these data. So that way for you know, your EVD, for your A-line, you can actually look and see what the waveform looks like, even retrospectively, to know whether or not the numbers that it's collecting are actually true measurements or not. So this Bedmaster system allowed us to collect very granular and very objective data and do it in a way that was guaranteed to be uniformly. The next thing we needed to do was come up with a way to accurately collect data about the medications being given. And we didn't want to rely on electronic health record data because that data may not always represent the exact time a medication was given, and we needed the time to be exact to be able to really use the Bedmaster system to its, uh, to its full potential. You know, the, the, the time is collected in EHR, it's hard to know whether or not that's actually the time that the medication was actually physically going into the patient or whether it's time, just the time that the nurse was signing off the order or seeing it for the first time or drawing it up or scanning it out of a drug cabinet. You know, it might reflect the time that the, the patient actually got it, but it also might not. So we decided to collect the medication administration data prospectively. So typically what would happen is a child would come in with a severe traumatic brain injury, would get an ICB monitor placed at the bedside. I personally collected all the data kind of during that first whirlwind. Uh, very often, obviously, their ICP was high when you first put the monitor in, so lots of medications were given very quickly. The bedside nurses were obviously busy actually giving the medications, so I would uh, collect the, the data of the exact time the medication was being infused during those times. Once sort of the dust kind of settled and things were down to kind of more routine critical care, the bedside nurses recorded the majority of the study medication administration. And so that way we were able to collect data prospectively about the exact time that it was given. It was also very important about what clock we used to, to do this. I was just thinking that. <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the things that we're fortunate enough to think about ahead of time. So luckily, the Bedmaster system is synced to the exact time that's on the monitor, and luckily the monitors at Pittsburgh display the time fairly prominently. So we were able to use that time, the time on the monitor, so not the time on the clock on the wall or on your iPhone or watch or anything like that, and that way it was synchronized to the exact minute, at least, that the medication was given. And that's kind of synchronized both the medication administration database and also the, the Bedmaster database. So that's how we collected the ICP data and the CPP data. We collected one more piece of data that uh, prospectively that I think was very important. So as any practicing clinician would know, there are obviously multiple reasons why a child might have an ICP spike. So number one is it could be obviously brain swelling. Number two, though, is it could be induced by external stimulation. So it could be that the patient just got suctioned or there was a large amount of noise in the room or some other painful procedure. Obviously, those stimuli can cause ICP spikes, and those were not really the spikes that we were looking for. You know, if a child had a painful procedure done, they should receive an, anti an analgesic medication like fentanyl or just let the ICP mm -hmm. spike subside. So we actually had the nurses prospectively collect for every time that they wrote down an ICP spikes medication. They prospectively said whether or not that spike was due to external stimulation. You know, they're at the bedside. They should be pretty good judges of this. And as I get to in our statistical methods, we excluded all of those spikes that were induced by external stimuli. The other thing we collected prospectively was whether or not there was any changes on the ventilator that might have increased minute ventilation. Obviously, if you turn up the, the rate or the tidal volume and blow off more CO2, you might get ICP-lowering effects just due to that. And if you give both a dose of a medication and also increase the ventilator and their ICP goes down, it's impossible to say whether or not it was the medication or the ventilator parameter change that caused the, ICP, uh, that caused the improvement in ICP. So we collected that data prospectively as well, and then also excluded all spikes that were treated with changes in the minute ventilation. So that was all the prospective data collection. Retrospectively, we went back through all of those data to make sure that they were accurate. 
So as I said before, the Bedmaster system collected all of the waveforms for all the data because it blindly collects the vital signs. So if your arterial line is reading 210 over 210 because the nurse is in it getting a blood gas, it's going to record 210 over 210. If, if your EVD is open to drain, it's still going to take whatever number, which is you know, essentially a random number up on the, the screen and write it down and, and record it in the database as a true ICP. So I spent a large amount of time basically looking back through waveforms of all of the children in the study to make sure that all of the data points that we included were actually valid data points taken from a measuring device that was being used properly and removing all of the non-physiologic and artifactual data. For the medication administration, at the time the nurses wrote it down, they just checked a box about which med that they gave. So I retrospectively went back and got the actual dosing data just to make it as easy as possible at the bedside to record it without having to worry about the dosing data at the time. And then for the mechanical ventilator settings, I also retrospectively reviewed the chart to make sure that they hadn't missed any instances where the ventilator got changed during the ICP spike as well. So all this data was collected prospectively and then pretty thoroughly kind of vetted retrospectively to make sure that it was accurate. Sounds like a massive amount of data. Yeah, we had just shy about 3 million time points to go through. So I only, what I call, cleaned the data for the time where medications were given and the subsequent two hours. So I didn't do it for the entirety because if the kid's ICP was five and they weren't getting any medications, it didn't matter to me whether or not they were getting an arterial blood gas drawn and messing up the blood pressure readings. But it was still a lot of time going using Excel's conditional formatting function, which is a way to highlight cells if they meet certain parameters. So basically, any time a mean blood pressure was zero or less, it would highlight the cell for me, so at least draw some attention. But I spent hours and hours and hours watching waveforms go by on my computer screen, looking for you know basically when the EVD was actually read, mm-hmm. when the A-line wasn't working right. It, it was a good amount of work. So what did you find when you looked at all of this massive amount of data? Well, so we had all of this data and we needed to figure out a way to analyze it meaningfully. And so through a variety of meetings with Dr. Steve Wisniewski, who is in the Department of Epidemiology at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and his team, specifically uh, Yetian and Bala, we came up with a multitude of ways to try to analyze these data. Because while we had this very robust, very granular data set, there were obviously limitations to it. You know, it's purely observational. And so the choice of medication was a controlled and, and importantly, more than one medication could have been given per spike. Each patient might have had several spikes over their PICU courses that were treated with the same medications. These observations weren't independent. And there was even a variable amount of data for each spike. You'd you know, have more or less ICP and CPP readings depending on how often they got blood gases during the next two hours or if they went to the CAT scan or to the OR. We lost all the data at that point going forward. So that was another variable that my statistical team was able to, to work out. So we were able to collect data on 25 children. Of those 25, six of them actually got no medications for high ICP. So that brings us down to 19 kids. All of those 19 kids got medications, but in three cases, every single time that they got a bolus, it was excluded either because it was due to external stimuli or because the mechanical ventilator was adjusted. So I left us with 16 kids. In those 16 children, the median age was 44 months. Three quarters of them were male. Their median GCS score was five. Six of them underwent uh, decompressive craniectomy, and 13 of the uh, 16 or 81% survived uh, hospital discharge. We collected data on 362 doses of medications. Nearly half of them were excluded because they were either due to external stimuli or mechanical ventilator adjustments. So that left us with 112 doses of fentanyl, 41 of hypertonic, 39 of pentobarb, and 4 of mannitol. Just for thoroughness sake, the hypertonic that we use in Pittsburgh was always 3% saline. So, like I said, we did a kind of a series of analyses to try to be able to show the readers the data in the most kind of thorough way possible. 
So in the most inclusive analysis we did, which is shown in figures one and two in the paper, we defined the baseline ICP as the mean ICP measured in the five minutes before the medicine was started. So it's, it's as many as 60 readings during those five minutes, and we took the average. And then we looked at various epochs following the start of the medication. So as soon as the med starts going in, the next five minutes, so zero to five, and then five to 10 minutes, 10 to 15, all the way up to 25 to 30 minutes. We then looked at longer epochs, 30 to 45 minutes, 45 to 60 60 to 90, and 90 to 120. So really looking from basically the time the medication started up to two hours out. For each of those epochs, we calculated the mean ICP. We looked at each medication independently. So for fentanyl, we had 112 groups of data, each with a baseline ICP and an ICP for each epoch following the medication. And then we used a, a standard Kruskal-Wallis ANOVA and found that there were significant differences in the ICP at various times. Then we use Dunn's test, which is a post-hoc test to be able to compare two different time points, to compare the baseline ICP to each epoch after the medication was started. So for fentanyl, we found that compared to the baseline ICP, ICP was lower in all epochs starting at the 10 to 15 minute one. So basically at 10 to 15 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes, 20 to 25, et cetera, the ICP was lower than it was in the five minutes prior to the fentanyl administration. We found the same exact pattern for hypertonic saline. So hyper, the ICP was lower starting at 10 to 15 minutes after the medication. And very similar for pentobar. In that case, the ICP was statistically lower at 20 to 25 minutes after the medication was started. For this particular analysis, we left out mannitol because, like I said, we only had four administrations that actually met uh, inclusion into our database. But if for fentanyl, for hypertonic, and for pentobar, we found that ICP was lower uh, at about 15 to 20 minutes or so after the initiation of the bolus. We did the same thing using the end of the boluses, time equals zero. So not surprisingly for fentanyl, this made no difference. Fentanyl on average was given over one minute as a slow push. So it's not surprising that the data are the same from the beginning and the end of the bolus. Hypertonic and pentobar were typically given over 15 to 20 minutes. So there's findings were not surprisingly different. And in both cases for hypertonic and for pentobar, we found that ICP was lower at the zero to five minute time point suggesting that if you give those medications, you may see ICP effects as early as basically when the bolus is finishing. We did the same two analyses for cerebral perfusion pressure, and we found that whether or not we use the start of the bolus or the end, that the results were the same. With CPPOs with fentanyl, there was no significant change in CPP during the entire two hours. With pentobarb, surprisingly, there was also no change in cerebral perfusion pressure, and that's very different than a lot of prior data that show that you often get hypotension or at least decrease CPP after pentobarb administration. And I think really what that shows is that while that is a certainly a risk factor of pentobarbital bolusing, it's something that certainly can be mitigated at the bedside with appropriate responses to, to try to minimize those effects. For hypertonic, we found that actually CPP was increased after administrating that drug, but it took about 45 minutes to see that effect. And that might be clinically important since low CPP has been associated with unfavorable outcomes. So those analyses, which again are shown in figure one and two in the paper, they have some obvious limitations. And one of them is that the data can reflect more than one medication. You know, if a child has an ICP spike at one o'clock and fentanyl is given at 105, but the ICP stays up, so hypertonic is given five minutes later, all that data from 110 on is reflecting both the administration of fentanyl and hypertonic. And so what we did is we went back through the data and for every single medication, we censored all of the ICP measurements that were taken after the next medication was started. So in that example, with the ICP starting at one, the spike starting at one, fentanyl given at 105 and hypertonic given five minutes later, 
the only data we would include for the fentanyl would be the 105 to 110 data and censor the rest. And uh, after censoring all of those, we did the same statistical methods and generally found similar results. For fentanyl, ICP was decreased starting at 10 to 15 minutes after both the start and the end of the drug. For hypertonic and for pentabarb, the ICP was decreased at about 20 minutes after starting the drug or just as the bolus was finishing. Again, the CPP wasn't changed with fentanyl or with pentabarb, and it was increased starting at about 45 minutes after hypertonic. So those are the most descriptive analyses we used. And again, they overall show that the ICP was decreased following all three meds and that hypertonic had unique beneficial effects on CPP. So we went through some of the limitations of the first analysis. The second analysis has some obvious limitations as well. It's really kind of a type of selection bias. So when you think about that, the hypothetical spike we just talked about, you censor all the data from five minutes on. And so the only data that you really get from fentanyl is at the later time points is the instances where fentanyl was effective and a second medication was given. So really all the data from the later time points preferentially come from boluses that happen to be efficacious. So we wanted to do, so we did another analysis specifically to try to address this kind of selection bias. That's shown in figure three. For each medication, what we did is compare the ICP, the baseline ICP, so that that average of the five minutes beforehand, to the ICP, the individual minute of five minutes after the medication. And so that did a couple things. Number one is it limited the opportunity for a second medication to be given because we're just looking at five minutes after the first drug was started. And what we did is in in the instances where a second medication was given in that little five minute window is we carried forward the last ICP measured prior to the second medication, and that was used as the five-minute ICP. So if you're, if someone was impatient and only gave fentanyl three minutes to work before giving a dose of pentabarb, then it was the three-minute ICP was carried forward to be the, the kind of outcome ICP in this analysis. And so we use just a simple t-test to compare the baseline ICP to the five-minute ICP. And then we use a mixed effects regression analysis to compare the effects between all four of the drugs. And we did this for both ICP and for CPP and using both the start of the bolus as time equals zero and the end of the bolus as time equals zero. So the data for this analysis is shown in figure three in the figure in the paper. So looking at the initiation of the bolus with fentanyl, there was no change in ICP, but CPP was simply decreased by a mean of about six and a half millimeters of mercury. Where with pentabarb five minutes after its initiation, there was no change, no significant change in either ICP or CPP. Hypertonic, on the other hand, had favorable effects on both. After just five minutes, ICP had decreased by a mean of two and a half millimeters of mercury, and CPP had increased by a mean of 4.1 millimeters of mercury. And when we did the mixed effects model to compare the effects between the drug classes, the ICP effects were significantly better with hypertonic than with fentanyl, and the effects on CPP were significantly worse with fentanyl compared to both hypertonic and pentabarb. We repeated that using the end of the bolus as time equals zero, Again, fentanyl, the ICP was not significantly different five minutes after the end of the bolus compared to the baseline. So we repeated the the same analysis using the end of the bolus as time equals zero. ICP was not significantly different five minutes after the end of a fentanyl bolus. ICP was an average 5.9 millimeters of mercury lower than baseline with hypertonic and 5.3 millimeters of mercury lower with pentabarb. And both of those ICP lowering effects were significantly better than the effect seen with fentanyl. In terms of CPP, it was decreased from baseline following fentanyl and increased following hypertonic with no significant change with pentobarbital. And we did include mannitol in all these analyses, but there was no significant change with either ICP or CPP using either the start or the end of the bolus, probably because, again, we only collected four doses of mannitol, the vet inclusion criteria. 
So why why do you think the fentanyl led to a decrease in cerebral perfusion pressure? So since the ICP is not changing, it has to mean that the mean systemic blood pressure going down and hypotension is certainly a relatively common side effect that you can get with fentanyl. And so I, I think it's just reflecting that. What's interesting, though, is that you don't get a compensatory increase in intracranial pressure, at least that's something I found interesting, because if autoregulation is intact when you get systemic hypotension, you should get cerebral vasodilation as a compensatory mechanism to that to try to maintain cerebral perfusion or cerebral blood flow, and we didn't see that. So I think that while your systemic blood pressure does go down, you probably are reducing your CMRO2 a little bit as well, and so therefore you're actually kind of keeping cerebral blood volume at about the same that are reflected in the, the maintenance and ICP. I might have expected the pentabarb also to lower blood pressure. You know, so our figure one and figure two show that overall there wasn't a significant change in CPP. I think the reason we might not have seen it in this, at least with the initiation of the bolus, is just because there wasn't enough time. Uh-huh. The fact that it didn't change at the at five minutes after the end of the bolus, I think, is just sort of a testament to how meticulous we are about blood pressure control and really being very aggressive about making sure that we don't allow these patients to become hypotensive. You know, it's obviously, there's a very strong association between systemic hypotension and and unfavorable outcome in TBI Uh that you really have to kind of be proactive and and ready for. So what what else did you find in your analysis? So we did two more analyses trying to, again, uh, deal with all the the potential confounders in this database. So we did a third uh, analytic technique trying to control for the lack of independence between the observations. You know, these are just 16 children, and obviously some of them had many spikes treated with the same medications over and over. So in that analysis, we looked at the time to the end of an ICP spike. So we defined the end of an ICP spike as the beginning of five minutes where the ICP was consistently less than 20. And we used a frailty model to analyze the time to resolution of the ICP spike for each medication. And one of the good things about this is we were able to adjust that model for any differences between the medications. So that included any differences in age between the meds, GCS score, ICP at the time of the medication, and several other that are all listed in the paper. We present these data in the paper as a Kaplan-Meier curve. And at first glance on the Kaplan-Meier curve, it looks like the ICPs and crises resolve relatively quickly with both fentanyl and hypertonic, and that pentabarb is, is kind of the slowest to cause ICP spike resolution. But once we controlled for all the variables that significantly differed between the medication groups, we found a hypertonic saline was associated with a two-fold faster resolution of the ICP spike compared to both pentabarb and to fentanyl, and that there was really no significant difference between fentanyl and pentabarb. And then the last thing we looked at was what we call treatment failure, uh, which was basically a, uh, a second medication having, having to be administered before the ICP spike resolved. And we found that the rates of treatment failure were similar among hypertonic, pentabarb, and mannitol at all time points, but the fentanyl had a higher failure rate at multiple time points compared to the other drugs. So in summary then, our data, uh, our descriptive analyses show that ICP seems to decrease after fentanyl, hypertonic, and pentabarb, and that the only significant change in CPP was a late increase after hypertonic. But after we controlled for multiple medications per ICP spike and just looked at the five-minute time points, our data suggests that hypertonic improves ICP and CPP as soon as five minutes after the bolus is started, and that those effects are even more beneficial five minutes after the bolus is completed. The data show that ICP was improved after pentabar, but this effect was only seen after the bolus was complete and that CPP is depressed after fentanyl while ICP is not significantly impacted. And given that, it's not really surprising that fentanyl was associated with the, with the highest rates of treatment failure. 
On the other hand, the frailty model backs up the more descriptive models. Supporting the hypertonic leads to faster resolution of ICP spikes than either fentanyl or pentobarbital. Can you talk a little bit about the limitations of this study? Yeah. So, you know, one of the obvious limitations is this is a single center study. So our protocol is obviously unique to our institution. It is based on the contemporary evidence-based expert guidelines. So I think that does help its generalizability a little bit, but it's just a single center study and it only reflects our care and specifically our use of continuous neuromuscular blockade, our use of continuous fentanyl. The fact that we don't really use Versed or propofol or other medications that some people use for intracranial hypertension may limit the generalizability. One of the other kind of large potential limitations is our, the size of our cohort. So while we included 25 kids in the study, we only analyzed data that came from 16 of them. Now, that obviously is not as large of an N as anyone would like in a study. But if you look at the studies that were included as evidence in the 2012 TBI guidelines, 16 patients is actually a pretty standard study size for pediatric TBI studies. For example, the, the only study that led the class to the, the level two evidence for any medication was the crossover study for hypertonic saline boluses that we talked about briefly before, and that study only included 18 patients. So while we would have liked there to have been more than 16 kids, it's not as big of a limitation as you might think otherwise. Obviously, this is an observational study, so all these associations are just that and not causation, though we did try to use multiple statistical methods to try to present the data and really try to tell a story with it and not just kind of give a, a large number of associations. And one other thing that was brought up by the reviewers is that we use both EVDs and intracranquable monitors, and the ICP can obviously differ between those two different monitoring systems. While we did use both monitors in the same patient, for each actual ICP spike, we only used one monitor, and all of our analyses were essentially before and after analyses. And so even though the patient had both an EVD and an ICP, we were really only comparing apples to apples and oranges to oranges by using the same monitor for both the before and the after. What are the implications of this study for our care of children with severe TBIs? So, you know, keeping in mind the limitations that we just went through, I think our data suggests fairly strongly that hypertonic might be the preferential agent for intracranial hypertension in these kids. Uh, ICP is decreased uh, in our database within five minutes of the bolus starting. It's associated with the fastest time to ICP spike resolution, and hypertonic was the only medication following which CPP was improved. So I think it does give fairly supportive evidence that hypertonic might be the, the preferential drug. On the other hand, our data suggests a fairly limited role for fentanyl. Now, it's important to remember that we explicitly excluded ICP spikes that were caused by painful stimuli, and so these data should not be applied in that situation. And certainly, we are in no way suggesting that fentanyl or any other kind of analgesic be withheld if a patient that has TBI and has intracranial hypertension is also in pain. That pain should be treated, obviously. But in cases of ICP spikes that are not caused by painful external stimuli, fentanyl was the only drug that was associated with a decreased CPP at the five-minute time point and it was associated with the highest treatment failure rate. So uh, even for myself and my practice, I've actually started to use a little bit less fentanyl for that situation based on the findings in this study. What further studies do you think we need to do? So, you know, the obvious ones, I think, are to use a similar design, try to repeat it at other centers, and try to get a larger cohort size. You know, I think getting multi-center data would help a lot with the, uh, the generalizability of the data. And obviously, the larger N you can get in a study like this, the more the data will be accepted by the community. 
it'd be nice, and it was one of our hopes that, unfortunately, we were, old, we were unable to see to fruition to try to identify patient-specific factors that are associated with drug efficacy. Our numbers were just not large enough, but we had hoped to be able to try to look at and see whether or not a patient's, for example, if their sodium level was associated with the efficacy of hypertonic saline boluses, or whether the patient's age or injury mechanism or CT findings or anything like that were associated with efficacy of a particular class. And then finally, you know, the, the way to truly answer this, if it's possible, is to do prospective RCTs of these drugs, or at least the two most promising. Obviously, there's lots of hurdles to get over to do a, a, an adequately powered RCT in this patient population, but I think that's you know, probably the gold standard. Well, you had such a sophisticated data collection system, and you know, as you described, many, many, many hours of data cleaning and data analysis went into this study. So carrying out an RCT across different centers will be a huge challenge. Yeah, and for a multitude of reasons, but specifically related to that, like to be able to really answer the question about the time course of these medications and which ones work the fastest, you need a similar granular data collection system. And while implementing and installing the bedmaster system is easy, you know, being able to make sure the data are true and free of artifact is a, uh, a time-intense thing to carry out. Right. And randomized trials in this patient population would also be challenging in terms of ensuring equipoise with regards to your management plans. Oh, totally. Especially, you know, for mannitol or something like that, trying to get people to withhold a therapy that's been so well-established in clinical practice for decades would be very challenging. And that's one of the reasons that I think there are so little data to support these is that, you know, they've been used for so long, people just kind of assume that they work. But we as a medical community have gotten in trouble before just kind of assuming that the traditional therapies are the way to go. And I think that with the advent of electronic health records and systems like Bedmaster, that we can try to perform large, hopefully multi-center observational studies that will really give us better data of what actually does work and what maybe doesn't work as well. I think you're exactly right. An awful lot of what we do is not well supported by data, but we fervently believe in it. <laughs> yeah, very true. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? I definitely want to thank all of my co-investigators, Nikki Ferguson, Julia Bayer, Bob Clark, Erica Fink, Elizabeth Tyler Cabrera, as I mentioned before, the, the statistical team, Steve Wisniewski, Yetian, and Bala, uh, I certainly could not have done this study without the help and guidance from all of those people. Most of all, I want to thank my mentors, Pat Kahanek and Mike Bell. You know, frankly, it was them always reminding us how little data there were to support the things that we did at the bedside that really prompted me to, to go to them to help design this study. And I in no way could have done what I did with this or really with any of my research career without their help and support. I need to thank all the nurses from the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, PICU, Again, without their help, the study would not have been possible at all. They collected a large amount of these data and did it just kind of to be good citizens and to help us learn more about these patients. I also want to thank the Pittsburgh Popcorn Company. I would always bribe the nurses for doing the data collection by giving them this really tasty popcorn. If you're ever in Pittsburgh, there's a handful of them across the city, including one in Oakland where the old children's hospital was. And then obviously, I want to thank you and thank SCCM for the opportunity to be on the podcast to share our work. I've been a long-time listener of the podcast, and it's really an honor to be able to be on it. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Steve. Oh, thank you, Margaret. I really appreciate it. We have been talking today with Dr. Stephen Shine from Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio, about the article, Effectiveness of Pharmacological Therapies for Intracranial Hypertension in Children with Severe Traumatic Brain Injury, Results from an Automated Data Collection System, Time Sync to Drug Administration, published in the March 2016 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. 
This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website for more information. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the Eye Critical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.